Griner Talks, about sustainability and transformation. A Griner podcast episode. How to create a sustainable future. How to change. That's what we are discussing here. My name is Alexander. I'm part of the sustainability team at Greiner. I'm here at the European Forum Alpbach in Austria with a highly demanded researcher, speaker, and thought leader. He's a world-renowned climate economist teaching at Columbia Business School. He's the author of books like Climate Shock, holds a PhD in political economy from Harvard, and regularly shares his opinions in newspapers like the New York Times. Welcome, Gernot Wagner. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Gernot, you are an Austrian living in New York City. Being used to the concrete jungle of Manhattan, how does it feel like to be here in a village in the Alps in Austria, a tiny village? Amazing, amazingly refreshing. And uh, not to jump right to the point, but yes, it's precisely the urbanism, the density of cities like Manhattan or Vienna or Innsbruck that makes this rural life possible. Right? That makes countryside possible and vice versa. It is the real nature that makes urban life, city life possible. The problem, the in-between, the single family homes in the suburbs with twice the CO2 emissions per capita and the massive land use implications. We'll surely talk more about city life and the implications a little later in this podcast. But first of all, I'd like to get an understanding of your job as a climate economist. How would you describe your job? Are you a passionate environmentalist with knowledge in economy or is it the other way around? Or let's say, are you into trees and birds or is it more like interest <laughs> rates and market mechanisms? Oh, okay, so yes. Yeah. So 20 years ago, introducing myself as a climate economist, you know, straight out of college back then, people were sort of staring and wait, pick a side, right? So what are you? You know about Chinese interest rates and exchange rates and unemployment rates and GDP, or you know about climate and you care about the environment. These days, I don't think anyone would say, oh, wait, those two don't go together. And very bluntly, the problem is misguided market forces. Of course it is. It's policies pointing in the right direction. It's economic forces pushing us in the wrong direction. And the solution is guiding those market forces in the right direction. It's pricing the negative externalities, subsidizing the positive one. And when we are talking about the climate crisis, for example, we often think of ecological questions like ecosystems that are declining, of extreme weather events like thunderstorms, heat waves, and so on. But economic interests are often perceived as contradictory as a kind of the root cause of this problem. So where is the role of economics in actually addressing this crisis? Well, just let's just talk dollars and cents or euros and euro cents. When you quantify those damages that we know of, that we can quantify, the quantified quantifiables alone, $200 plus minus per ton of CO2 emitted. 200 euros per ton of CO2 for each ton that we emit. The average European, 10 tons per capita. Average American, by the way, like 16 or so, right? So as a dual citizen, 
not get you know uh, 16 plus 10. Uh, that's not how the math works, of course. But yes, each of these tons of emissions causes damages. Who pays for those? Well, for the most part, all 8 billion of us. Everybody pays a fraction of a penny. And future generations. And future generations even more so. And no, this is not abstract. Right? We just had a heat wave in Austria. Heat wave was followed by storms and floodings. And by the way, that's the future. That's the extremes. It's, it's not just about the slowly, frankly, much too fast, but still relatively slowly increasing global average temperatures. Nobody lives at the average. It's about the extremes. It's about the extreme weather events. It's about that hurricane hitting Florida as we speak that three days ago, nobody was predicting would actually turn into a hurricane because we are so far outside the normal. Ocean temperatures are so much higher. There's so much more energy in the atmosphere than there was before we started putting billions of tons of CO2 into the atmosphere that there are these uncertainties, these extremes that, yes, have very real economic business consequences. So you are answering my follow-up question, actually. Are we putting a sufficient price tag on nature? Nope. Are we paying, <laughs> we are we paying the money we should be paying for products and services that we are consuming? Uh, so no, we are not, right? And, you know, that's the point, right? So this is sort of the simple, the simplistic economic answer is price the externality, price the full costs and get out of the way. Well, yes, that is the answer. But of course, right? The big question is, okay, how do you actually do that? Of course. And, no, we are not anywhere close to you know, those 200 euros I just said uh, per ton of CO2. So actually in the EU, for about half the EU CO2 emissions, we have an emissions trading system. We have a price that's about 100 euros per ton of CO2. That's pretty darn good. It's the same order of magnitude. It's not the solution yet. It's not, you know, we solve climate change, let's move on and worry about other problems. Not at all. Lots of things still need to happen. But yes, right? This is a race into the clean energy decarbonized future. And we are in it. How can you change a global economic system if certain continents push ahead, introduce carbon pricing, introduce more ambitious climate policies and others do not? Well, it's a race. It's a competition. And frankly, had we spoken 13 months ago on this continent, Europe, there would have been a legitimate argument to say Europe is doing a lot. Look at the US. Nothing. Now, that's not actually true. Wasn't true back then either. So, you know, fellow Austro-American signed the cap-and-trade system in California into law as Governor Schwarzenegger back then. Uh, I live in New York City. New York has one of the strongest decarbonization laws, Local Law 97, on the books that say it's going into effect next year, 2024, and the first target is minus 40% CO2 emissions in all buildings by 2030, within six years. That's about as ambitious, as quick as any of these laws. And yes, 70% of New York's emissions are from buildings, local law 97. The other 30, transport. Other thing happening on the transport side, traffic side, congestion pricing in New York. Stockholm has it. London has it. It works. 
Well, now New York City is doing it too. Speaking of this race to clean energy, you are living in the US, you are now here in Austria at the moment. How do you compare America, North America to Europe, for example? Who is leading the race? Who is winning? Europe has the structural advantage of having a European emissions trading system, of having individual countries like Sweden with its carbon tax starting in 1991, or Austria with its carbon tax starting last year, or Germany having a carbon tax, and so on, and lots of other ambitious policies on the books, often, not exclusively, but often on the demand side of things, subsidizing the deployment of solar panels, and so on. The US now has the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, passed 12 months ago, has a bipartisan infrastructure law, has the Chips and Science Act, has this amazing, massive, surprising in many ways, push on the supply side to invest hundreds of billions of dollars. By some measures, it adds up to $2 trillion of federal subsidies for clean, lean, mean, efficient energy. That is amazing. And maybe the element of surprise is even the most amazing bit here, right? So yes, the U.S. is a late entrant into this race. The U.S. is racing, sprinting here. And yes, now in Europe here, we've got to push ahead here too. And yes, green reindustrialization of Europe is one of the major themes that ought to be much more on the forefront of everybody's minds were once again, this is not about climate versus employment, climate versus the economy. This is how do we channel market forces in the right direction? How do we create the kinds of jobs that will help us push in that direction? How can we deploy the solutions that exist at scale to cut emissions, not the 5%, not the 8 or 9 or 10%, that yes, there are always some efficiency improvements everywhere, and we should do those too. But to look for the 80, the 90, the 100% solution, and yes, they exist too. You have mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, and it's a huge topic at the moment also in Europe, inflation, of course. And according to your research, investing in energy efficiency, investing in renewables would actually counter inflation or would cause deflation in the medium to long term. How so? Uh, so actually, this is a, this is a German economist, uh, Isabel Schnabel. She sits on the, uh, the board of the European Central Bank, and she coined the term fossilflation. Inflation caused by fossil fuel use. And yes, of course, that is the situation we are in, right? The guy in the Kremlin blows a fuse, right, on February 24th or had a bad night, right? Invades another sovereign nation. And well, we are living through the consequences. Why? How does that work? Well, it's our dependency on fossil fuels, our dependency on these commodities, these three commodities, right? oil, uh, coal, and gas, and those commodity prices will always fluctuate. Putin's invasion wasn't the first time we experienced fossilflation, right? Sort of every 10 years, so throughout the fossil fuel age, right? Sort of predictably, once a decade, every decade, something happens somewhere, and suddenly prices spike. 
geopolitics drive this price spikes. And there's always this sort of amazing thing. Oh, whoa, didn't know that that could happen. It's like, yes, you did. We didn't know how. We didn't know when precisely. But fossil inflation, of course, inflation caused by fossil fuels has been with us since the dawn of the fossil fuel age. What's the solution? Get off fossil fuels. So sticking to fossil fuels, even a bad idea from an economic perspective. Absolutely. Gernot, looking at your website, you're very passionate about forward-looking policy, about forward-looking legislation. Better than backward-looking, yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Is there any piece of legislation or policy at the moment that you are especially excited about that is maybe being drafted right now or that is being rolled out right now? Honestly, if you ask me right now, it's about implementation. It is about making sure that the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., the all three laws, chips and science, bipartisan infrastructure, actually mean we put gear in the ground, we deploy, we put those solar panels on houses, we install those heat pumps, we install the induction stoves, we finally get off internal combustion engines and onto electric vehicles. Those new, better, cheaper technologies, not always cheaper immediately, which of course is the problem. It takes investment, right? It takes waking up at 6 a.m. and going to the gym to have a better and healthier life as a result and enjoy the rest of the day more. Of course, it takes that. Gannot, in the Washington Post, you recently wrote, the only thing as certain as death and paying taxes is climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good line. Yes, I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> But still, I think there's quite a big community of people ignoring climate change, sometimes ignoring scientific facts. Yeah. Even within politics. How do you deal with them? And is that one of the reasons why you are communicating so much? You are on panels, you are in newspapers, you're writing books. What, what drives you? What motivates you? Well, exactly that. Now, I would say, uh, no. Not even, you said, you said sort of, oh, even in politics. Uh, well, of course, especially in politics, right? Because that's where the vested interests go, uh, push to shove, right? And this is where, okay, so uh, European debates, as far as I, I sort of know them from afar. Or have, so, so this is sort of the, okay, amazing debate, I guess, in German and Austrian politics, European politics these days about, oh, should we have the Zillertalbahn run on hydrogen as opposed to electricity? Let's start with physics. Electricity is five times more efficient than the liquid fuel, than the hydrogen. In your internal combustion engine, the same thing. The electric vehicle is fundamentally a better technology. Technology points in one and only one direction. And by the way, economics does too. Speaking of technology, if we manage to reduce our emissions, to reduce our usage of fossil fuels, We might be limiting global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees if we really manage that. If we don't manage it, technology might provide other solutions. You have recently written a book about that called Geoengineering, The Gamble. And you're actually looking at something that sounds to me like science fiction, like attempting to cool down the Earth by reflecting sunlight back into space. Could that be a potential solution? What are the risks? No, it can't. It's not a solution. And actually, let's start with the climate goals first, right? So yes, we should limit emissions as much as possible. And yes, 
it pays for itself economically to do so in order to limit global average temperatures. And 1.5 may not work out, not even 2 degrees. But then it's not, oh, it's either 2 degrees or bust, right? Then it's 2.1 degrees or 2.11 degrees and so on and so forth. And yes, of course, it's about cutting emissions. So answer, okay, solution number one, and the actual solution is cut emissions. Two, adapt, cope with, with what's in store. That also must be part of climate policy, of course, because yes, things are bad enough as we speak. Third element, take CO2 out of thin air. Carbon dioxide removal, yes, also must be part of the solution by now because yes, there's too much darn pollution up there already. What's the fourth one? What's the potential fourth one? Yes, indeed, solar geoengineering, research into this technology that, you know, you might describe in various ways as devil's bargain and so on and so forth. The way I like to think about it is, so technologically, yes, it's technologically feasible. We think we know it would work largely because volcanoes have been doing it forever. It would work because the albedo effect White reflects the light back and cools what's underneath, right? Shirts in the summer and uh, dresses in the summer are white tend to be lighter colors. Winter jackets tend to be black, right? That's the same phenomenon. Um, now, on a planetary basis, of course, that's scary. This is the sort of, you know, in some sense, the ultimate techno fix that, no, we must not rely on because it does not tackle the underlying problem. I'd love to ask many more questions on that topic. We might have to do another podcast episode, actually. But I have some more questions on city life for you. You are living in New York City, more precisely in Manhattan. And that's a place known for nonstop traffic, for congestion, very little nature, probably not the best air quality. I just want to know, as an advocate for sustainability, why would you choose that place to live in? Well, so first of all, I do have a backyard. It has <laughs> three million square meters. It's called Central Park. Uh, but you no, know, all joking aside. So yes, Manhattan is a dense urban environment. It is precisely dense urban environments that make actual nature possible. And of course, the other way around too, right? Nature makes these sorts of cities possible in the first place. Just to give you a sort of a quick thought experiment. If the entire world lived as densely as Manhattan, all 8 billion of us, we would occupy a space the size of Germany. Everything else is nature and the sort of environment that provides the nature's services, food, energy, and so on, for the urban life to be possible in the first place. Of course, there's that too, of course. And, and yes, exactly, right? Okay, so of course, that's a right, crazy thought experiment, but actually it proves the point, right? That yes, it is urban life that makes nature possible on this planet. And yes, it is the sort of solution, if you will, that actually depends on how you present it, right? It's either, oh yeah, that's clearly only a lifestyle choice, right? I prefer my home in, you know, my suburban single family home, well, Turns out you don't live in nature if you live in suburbia. Let's start with that, right? And two, no, it's not, oh, yes, this is personal preference here. 
it is very much the interaction of modern technology that allows for this dense urban environment that makes it so efficient, that makes it, frankly, so desirable, right? Because, yes, it is the dense urban environment where the square meter costs a lot more than anywhere else. Why is, does it do that? Well, okay, supply is limited and demand is through the roof, right? And that combination, of course, should tell us which way things could or should be going as well. And your apartment in lower Manhattan is not a place that you're making big secrets of. There's a lot of articles online. I've just read that even the president of Austria has been a visitor to your place some two years ago. He did have an espresso, yes. <laughs> <laughs> What are the most efficient measures to make your own four walls more climate friendly? What are you most proud of in your apartment? Because I know you did a lot of work and effort there. And to be clear, that, right, that was the reason for the visit, right? So it turns <laughs> out he didn't stop by. <laughs> so yes, well, basically, okay, I live in a 200-year-old home. The building is 200 years old. One of the sort of first few hundred buildings in Manhattan that's still standing today. So no, right? It's not the easiest environment to say, okay, and now let's figure out how German passive house standards can be implemented here, right? And by the way, no, it's not a passive home, right? Because in some sense, you can't get all the way there, even if you tried very, very hard for, for some sort of very, you know, the, the usual sort of bureaucratic reasons, if you will. Right. So, of course, landmarks has something to say about what we do to this building, given its age and so on and so forth. Or for that matter, we don't actually own the outside envelope of our apartment. We own the inside. We can do whatever we want to the inside walls. We can install a heat pump. We did. We can install an induction stove and cut the gas line. We did. We can insulate like crazy everywhere, ceiling, walls. Yes, we can insulate the floor. We can install a massive new door that, yes, provides, you know, security, if you will, but more importantly, of course, also energy efficiency and so on and so forth, right? Efficient appliances, low flow toilet and so on. And, you know, LED lighting. Sure. Yes. But it's, of course, about the broader system. It's about the effects a step like this has. And actually, I'm happy to say so. Right? We did this four years or so ago. This summer, this month, actually, all other six of our neighbors, so the seven of us total, all six of our neighbors are getting induction stoves, are cutting their own gas line. And the whole building will cut its gas line as soon as that is complete in a month or so. And yes, of course, right, this is the example of any one of these individual steps is always about what comes next. It's always about, oh, wow, hi, dear neighbors, check out our kitchen. This is pretty cool. What do you think? Should we be doing this as a building? Are there advantages if we do? How much money do we save if we do that? And yes, this is where we are. This is the positive side of the climate race. These are the positive tipping points. Plenty of negative climatic tipping points. Socioeconomic ones, positive socioeconomic ones, where the first one to do it is sort of the crazy one. The second one is sort of the decisive. And once the third one comes around and does it, everybody does it. So being a role model and early adopter can have quite a lot of effects. Yes. You might even have coffee with the president. <laughs>
if you could teleport your apartment from Manhattan to Alpbach in the Austrian Alps, would you do that? Yes. Now, that may actually be even better, right? So because it's about the system too, right? Austria, Land der Berge, Land am Strome, Austrian National Anthem, Land of Mountains, Land of uh, the one uh, Danube River we have, the one big river, <laughs> uh, which means 70% of our electricity is hydro. Not because of climate considerations, but because of geography, history. That's just what we used to power the grid. Not fully, right? There's sort of 20% left and that's 100% Russian gas. And that's a real problem, of course. But yes, New York on average has many fewer emissions per capita, half a third than the average single family home in the suburbs around Manhattan. The US on average has almost twice as high emissions as Austria. So what's, in some sense, the best way to do it? Well, live like a New Yorker in Alpbach, in Amstetten, <laughs> in Austria. I think that's a very nice concluding remark for this conversation. I'd love to ask many more questions. But before I let you go, I'd like to invite you to do a short word wrap with me. So I will give you a few words, terms, and you can reply with whatever comes to your mind immediately. First one is New York City. Home. Cycling. The one and only way to get around. Teaching. Passion. Climate denial. Last century. <laughs> Money. Makes the world go round. And the one thing you miss about Europe. Linzertot. <laughs> Last but not least, your message to the world. Um, this is a race and it's not either or. It's not, whoa, scary. Yes, change is scary. But we know it's not if, it is when. It's a race toward the future. We are all part of this. And yes, new technologies turn out to be better technologies. And the decarbonized, high-efficiency, low-carbon life is advantageous economically, personally, societally, and yes, you save the climate too while you're at it. Thank you so much for that conversation and for having me here in Alpbach. Dankeschön. <laughs> and thank you everybody for listening to this podcast episode. Make sure to check out Gernot Wagner's website, gwagner.com, and subscribe to this podcast. Have a nice day. Griner Talks, a Griner podcast. Subscribe now.